Hello and welcome to another edition of Webinar Extra. This is where we bring you some more time with one of our webinar presenters so that we can answer some of those additional questions that, well, there just wasn't enough time for during the live event. Think of it as the dessert to the main course. You mean the bonus track at the end of the album? I mean the podcast after the night before. And if you haven't already seen the webinar, then you can head to our college online learning page and check it out. Or you can just keep listening, nodding sagely while you wonder what everyone is banging on about. The choice is yours. We hope you enjoy the programme. Okay, so following on from the excellent webinar on urgent ophthalmology cases, we have had a lot of interest in this topic and a lot of questions from our delegates that were unfortunately not covered in the Q&A session for time reasons. Now, with over a thousand people listening on the webinar, it's perhaps unsurprising we had so many questions come in. And just to advise our listeners, we've tried to group together the questions as best as possible to answer as many as we can, but there are a small number of questions which have been rephrased or merged for clarity. So if you're listening in and at the end you feel that we haven't addressed your question or it's not been fully answered, do contact us on the clinical advisor email or phone line and we'd be more than happy to help answer a specific or nuanced point that we haven't covered. I'd just like to thank Reese again for the webinar and the time taken to record the session. So without further ado, let's make a start and work through those questions. So welcome, Reese. Hi, thank you. So we've had a, a, quite a lot of questions around papilledema and optic disc appearance. So I'll just start with a, a question from one of the delegates. Can signs of papilledema reverse or resolve without treatment where there is no obvious underlying cause? Okay, so this is an interesting question because really for any papilledema, there should always be a cause. And if there's no obvious underlying cause, that probably means that you just haven't found it yet. Now, absolutely, you know, you could get papilledema that does resolve. So, for example, in cases of idiopathic intracranial hypertension, um, that obviously causes papilledema and that papilledema may resolve with weight loss. And if you didn't make the diagnosis of idiopathic intracranial hypertension, that would be a case of self-resolving papilledema, but there was, of course, a cause. A similar thing would go for any drug-induced causes of papilledema, or sometimes even nutritional causes of papilledema as well. If the underlying problem is corrected, then the papilledema would then resolve. The real thing I take exception with in the question is if there is no obvious underlying cause. I'd probably suggest that people take the stance of, I'm going to find the cause for the papilledema, not, oh, there's no obvious cause. Thank you. So I think it's also important to be mindful that papilledema is actually a clinical sign and not a diagnosis. So you need to determine the cause absolutely in the first instance. So certainly agree with that. Exactly. So just, just following on from that, actually, uh, a member or delegate, sorry, did mention that they really enjoyed hearing about the right scan being so important when it comes to having patients who have possible papilledema. And should optometrists feel confident in requesting a particular type of scan? So that question was referring to the right sort of neuroimaging scan. And obviously, most of the time, unless the optometrist is working within the hospital setting, they won't be the one um, requesting that scan. However, they can certainly inform. I think it's really, really important to remember, especially if you're sending a patient to a general A&E or to, you know, they know that they're not going to be seen by an ophthalmologist, that you really lay out clear what the suspected diagnosis is and what the expected um, level of investigation should be. 
The ultimate responsibility lies with the treating doctor and the radiologist who arranges and protocols that scan. But certainly giving more information and advice is always a good thing. I think there's a tendency for people to almost believe that general doctors will know everything about ophthalmology. Well, most doctors know very little about ophthalmology, and that's why you have ophthalmologists, and that's why the training for ophthalmology is minimum seven years long. Um, so I think giving as much advice, suggestion, um, in a referral, so much the better, especially in these emergency cases. And you've got to remember that the responsibility ultimately lies with the treating clinician who then organizes that scan. But for example, I wouldn't expect um, most general doctors to confidently diagnose a, a partial third nerve palsy and then make the secondary jump that this person not only needs a CT scan, but a CT scan with an angiogram. So more help, more advice, the better. Understood. And, and just leading on to that as well, when it comes to referring, if, if you've got a case where you're not sure it was papilledema, or you have suspicious disappearance, what would be the best course of action? I mean, should you be sending fundus images to the ophthalmologist or the neurology department? So we kind of touched on this during the actual uh, talk. I, I think the most important thing is to say, you know, check your local procedures, check with the um, local hospital eye services. This is a common problem across the nation and each hospital should have some protocol and advice how to do how to deal with these cases. And you're absolutely right. When papilledema is there and it's easy to diagnose, it's easy to know what to do with that patient. You send them directly in and speak directly to the ophthalmologist. However, there are always these, I'm not quite sure what this optic nerve is. Is it swollen? Is it not? And I think that there is a role for the sort of not emergency, but urgent referral and it's down to each individual hospital trust to define what that pathway should look like. As you mentioned before, you know, sending in photos, absolutely brilliant. The more information in a referral, um, the better. It's better for the doctor to be able to triage it. So if they are genuinely worried about it, to get it in urgently, or if they're not, even to treat remotely. And also, I imagine it alleviates a lot of um, anxiety, both for the doctor triaging, the optometrist referring, and also ultimately to the patient as well, who probably gets a better service. So a bit like the previous question, the more information you can give, the better. Of course, where available and where electronic referral systems allow, I, I know that's a perennial problem. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Reese, for that. That's lovely. I think there's been a lot of interest about, you know, what happens once they get referred in this well. So um, a delegate's also asked a question about raised intracranial pressure. So once it's detected on lumbar puncture, how soon, if at all, should an MRI on other neuroimaging be performed? I think that's uh, an interesting question. And I think it probably gets the order of investigation out of whack. Basically, any patient with, a, with optic disc swelling tends to have neuroimaging first, followed by a lumbar puncture. And there's really, really important reasons why you don't do a lumbar puncture before any um, neuroimaging 
if you are suspecting raised intracranial pressure. And that's because if there was an intracranial mass that was causing raised intracranial pressure, so for example, a brain tumor, and you didn't know about it and then did a lumbar puncture, you're dropping the pressure below the skull in the spinal cord, you're dropping that pressure very low when the pressure in the skull remains high and that can actually squeeze the brain down through the opening of the spinal cord. And it's a process called coning, which is an emergency condition because it can kill the patient. So whenever you are suspecting raised intracranial pressure, the advice is to always do the scan first and then do the lumbar puncture. Now that does go separate. There are cases where you can do a lumbar puncture without neuroimaging beforehand, but those are never in cases of papilledema and they're never in cases of suspected intracranial uh, hypertension. So I understand the question, but in reality, when dealing with swollen discs, that is not the order uh, that you do those investigations. Understood. I think that's really important. That was, that was made clear, Reese. Thank you. So just moving on about disc appearance as well then. So are swollen optic discs a typical presentation in posterior uveitis? Yeah, so any inflammatory condition um, can sometimes cause um, optic disc swelling. Occasionally, um, you can see it in, you know, particularly florid intermediate uveitises, commonly in posterior uveitises. Really, though, I would probably say that there's more prominent signs of um, posterior uveitis. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at a swollen optic nerve with a normal fundus and then just go, oh, I wonder if this is posterior uveitis. But it's something to bear in mind if the patient has got vitreous inflammation or any other signs of inflammation. And then it also helps tailor your, um, your level of investigation and how you do it. For example, if there were other signs of, oh, I don't know, say a neuroretinitis, it would probably take you down a more infective path and thinking, I wonder if this person has a, has a space occupying lesion called causing raised intracranial pressure. So yeah, absolutely. Hot discs, swollen discs, really, really common in posterior uveitises, but there's normally other signs of them as well. Understood. Thank you, Reese, for clarifying that. So moving on to another question relating to disc appearance. Should we be concerned about crowded optic discs in myopes? So myopic people are much more likely to have larger discs and larger discs are much less likely to be crowded. So this question sort of leaves out an important intermediary uh, step, which is, well, how big is the disc? Short-sighted people can have small discs and small discs can be crowded. Short-sighted people, however, are much more likely to have larger discs. So ultimately, I'd be much more concerned with how big or small that disc is. So measuring the disc, really, really assessing, look, the question should be, am I looking at a big or a small disc rather than am I looking at a myopic eye or an emetropic eye, for example? So disc measurement, understanding what's a small nerve, really, really critical. But I understand the sort of underlying angst in that question and yeah but come down to measuring the optic disc and just remember that 
because myopes more likely to have tilted nerves, they often have quite funny looking nerves, quite difficult to interpret nerves anyway because of um, anomalous changes on the uh, disconfiguration. Lovely, thank you. And just moving on now to some final questions about disc appearance. This relates to optic disc drusen. So first of all, how do optic disc drusen appear if they're not calcified? And at what age do they become calcified? So optic disc drusen, which are not calcified, are really, really hard to see. The normal evolution of optic disc drusen is that they tend to start off um, not calcified and normally buried. And it's as, as the patient ages, they tend to uh, migrate further towards the optic disc, become a bit more apparent at the same time of, as them calcifying. Exactly when they calcify, we don't really know. There have been studies. It's probably around the age of 10. Um, one study um, looked at non-calcified drusen and followed those children up with regular B scans to document when they were finally calcified. And that happened at around the age of nine. The real difficulty with answering that question is, well, it's really hard to find drusen that aren't calcified, especially if they're buried. So my gut feeling is we tend to say they tend to calcify at around the age of 10, the preteen sort of time. It's incredibly hard to spot them if they're not calcified. They're often buried. So they look just more like small and crowded optic nerves, well, crowded optic nerves rather than um, clear, obvious drusen. So does a B-scan ultrasound or fundus autofluorescence help detect deeper optic distrusion? So that's a really good question. And basically, B-scan is probably the gold standard, or it certainly always was the gold standard for looking for uh, optic disc drusen. The problem with B-scan is it's dependent on the actual person doing it. You have to be pretty proficient with the B-scan to find really small drusen. Um, but it is exceptionally good at it. Autofluorescence takes a lot of the nuance and technical difficulty out of the operator's hands, but then there's problems that, you know, the autofluorescence might not be exposed quite as, as well, and autofluorescence probably isn't as good at looking for a buried optic disc drusen as a B-scan, although it still can find buried optic disc drusen. If it were up to me, I would always do a B-scan, but that's because I'm very comfortable looking for disc drusen with a B-scan. Um, I suppose a standard um, sort of pathway for investigation is to do an autofluorescence. And look, I work in a very well-staffed A&E. Most of these patients have a lot of the investigations before I actually see them. And often an autofluorescence is done before I even see them. If there are no obvious disc drusen, I probably would be tempted to still go on and do a B-scan, but if they're visible on the autofluorescence, I wouldn't. The real question is, is the role of um, extended depth imaging OCT and whether that now is probably better than B-scan. Again, you know, it's probably not as good if you're technically proficient with a B-scan, far less technician dependent, but again, you have an access uh, problem. 
insofar as a lot of units may not have the latest generation of OCT that can really image deep down into the choroid and optic nerve. That leads on to um, the next question. So relating to the use of an OCT to examine optic distrusion. Now, there's a question that's come from a, a delegate about peripapillary hyperreflective ovoid mass light structures. Are these drusen or are they a different, uh, different structure entirely? I would recommend, there's an amazing paper um, and I think it's open access and it's by uh, the Optic Disc Drusen Consortium. And it's, it's only about a four page um, uh, article and it really, really goes deep down into OCT findings in disc drusen. So I'd really, really recommend reading that. And it answers most of your questions on this. And actually it's such a treasure trove of little nuggets of information. Um, so from, from their work, you know, these peripapillary hyperreflective ovoid mass-like structures, not a great name, FOMS, as people often call them. So nobody really knows what they are. They used to be thought of as a precursor or a variant of optic disc drusen. However, they probably aren't. On certain studies, they've done longitudinal studies following people up and, you know, they don't end up as drusen or anything like that. They often don't, well, they definitely don't autofluoresce and you can't find them on B-scan. And they often obscure the margin of the disc, which corresponds quite nicely with that sort of blurred disc margin that you see in pseudopapilledema. So again, not all blurred disc margins are papilledema. Um, but you can get FOMs associated with disc drusen and they commonly are associated with disc drusen. But you can also get them without disc drusen, and you can also get them with papilledema. So their presence should never tip you into thinking this is truly swollen or not truly swollen, and they should not be confused as a diagnosis of disc drusen. They are a clinical sign, as I keep stressing, there are very few investigations which is really going to give you the the one binary answer of yes, this is a swollen disc or no, this isn't a swollen disc. So, you know, they're useful as an adjunct to complement your examination, but they're not going to tell you 100% if that is a swollen nerve or not. Now, what are they? Well, it's sort of thought that if you think of the optic nerve, all it is is a massive bundle of nerve fibers of the axons of the actual neurons bundled together from the retina going to the brain. And basically, you can think of it as a load of wires. And if there's something there, it can cause those nerve fibers, those axon bodies to sort of herniate and buckle out of the optic nerve, causing a sort of, sort of, well, uh, peripapillary hyperreflective ovoid mass. And that's basically what they're thought to be. The axons being pushed out of the way, commonly because of disc drusen, not always because of disc drusen, but yeah, that's what they're thought to be, but it's very difficult to prove exactly what they are. Thank you, Rhys. So moving on to uh, cranial nerve palsies and, and ptosis that may be associated with them. In a third nerve palsy, for example, how can you tell the difference between a ptosis and eyelids that droop with age? Okay, so all atosis is are eyelids that droop. 
So you've got to come down to why you you think it, the eyelid is drooping. So you can you know you can say oh it's related to age-related drooping or an aponeurotic ptosis. It's due to one of the muscles or a myogenic ptosis, or is it a neurogenic ptosis due to the nerves controlling the levator? Um, the real key to this is examination. And every ptosis, you want to do a full eyelid examination, just like we all have to do for our exams when we're training. You really have to assess the palpable aperture, where the skin creases, what the sort of levator function is. Every single patient, I examine eye movements. I document pupil assessment, looking for any anisocoria. So it's important to look in the dark and the light to try and bring out any uh, mild anisocoria. Um, I assess for signs of fatigability, thinking about myasthenia gravis. And you've got to use all of those to come to a conclusion as to why you think that ptosis is happening. Alongside that, you know, you can think about other signs, orbital signs. So, you know, um, you'd probably want to document other cranial nerves or if there's any proptosis of, of the eye on that side um, or even enophthalmus. Um, so, yeah, there's no one thing that you can do it's a combination of all of the facets of examination and it sounds awful when you list them all out but a good lid examination you you can rattle off quite quickly in about 45 seconds so yeah you've got to do all of those to really conclude why it's happening i think i think that's also a timely reminder for listeners that you've got to be mindful rather than looking at signs in isolation there needs to be a battery of tests or in the context of that patient presentation to work out what's going on. So uh, now moving on to third nerve palsies. Now, this is uh, often a cause for alarm in optometric practice. And it's often um, some practices may be confused about where they should be best be sent to. Should they be sent to an eye casualty, for example, an A&E department, or, or, or should you call for an ambulance? Interesting question. Tough to give you an answer. It all depends. And again, depends on where you're working in the country. I think you got to remember that Every single patient should be covered by 24-hour ophthalmology care that should be present for advice. And I think if you're unsure what to do with a patient with an ophthalmic presenting emergency, obviously, you know, this is an emergency because of a non-ophthalmology problem. Um, I think probably the best thing to do is speak to the local ophthalmologist on call and they'll probably advise where to direct that patient. But let's say, you know, they're not answering. So absolutely, I think in working hours, I think it's entirely appropriate to send that patient to the uh, eye casualty or the emergency eye clinic. It's really, really important that those signs are confirmed, documented, also, all eye clinics are places of safety. You know, they're normally connected to uh, a general hospital. They will be covered by sort of um, emergency teams if something unfortunate were to happen. Out of hours, I would recommend, you know, if I wouldn't wait until the next day if it's a clear third nerve palsy. I think, you know, sending to A&E uh, out of hours is entirely appropriate. But again, with the caveat, I would still try and inform the on-call ophthalmologist. 
So whether to call an ambulance is a really good question. And often it's something I have to contend with because working in Bristol, we are a separated hospital. So when I have a patient who is um, with a third nerve palsy, I have to send them to a different site to have that investigation. Now that site's only 100 yards up the road, but if they've got a third nerve palsy, I have to do a risk assessment for how they get there. By and large, I think if they're going with a responsible adult, that is fine. If they are well with no signs of headache or other, um, with other signs of neurology. So an entirely well patient with an adult. So let's say they're in your optometry practice in the community. I think it's entirely reasonable to say to that person, you need to go directly to hospital. Do not go anywhere else. And if anything happens, stop, call an ambulance on the way. And I think that is reasonable. Where it probably would push you more to get an ambulance is to actually, if that patient has got a headache, if they are showing signs of neurological illness, so you know they're unwell, they're feeling sick. And actually the case I presented in um, the talk um, she actually uh, had a headache. Um, she was feeling very sick. And I said, look, um, I called up the main hospital and I said, I'm calling this lady a 999 ambulance. I don't want her coming back to the eye hospital for the result. I'm so certain she's got an aneurysm that even if she doesn't, she is systemically unwell. She needs to be with you. So I think in that situation, um, an ambulance is entirely appropriate. And I understand how hard that is for a lot of optometrists to listen to because you're not generally medically trained. But really, it's what that patient looks like in your chair. Do they look like somebody who is well or do they look like somebody who is having a problem? Um, and then you've got to think, well, if they are well, are they with a responsible adult? So if they're on their own, but well, you're getting into a gray area. They probably shouldn't drive themselves to hospital. So you probably are looking at either getting a responsible adult to them or an ambulance. Just moving on to pupil anomalies now, particular Horner syndrome. So is it acceptable to refer the patient if they show two out of the three signs for the criterion for a diagnosis of Horner syndrome? Probably yes, because they sort of say, well, two out of the three signs. Well, there's multiple signs of uh, Horner syndrome. So, you know, which two out of which three are we talking about? But, you know, you'd be pretty brave to be sat there with somebody with a two millimeter ptosis, looks like a Horner's, with a constricted pupil on that side, and then say, oh, but they're, you, you, you know, they're sweating on that side, I'm not going to refer them. So, you know, I think if it looks like a Horner's, you've got to make that decision. And you can't say, oh, but, you know, maybe they are sweating on that side or, oh, you know, maybe there is a ciliospinal reflex, which is a terrible sign to look for in, in conscious patients. I'm therefore not going to refer that patient. So if it looks like a Horner's and smells like a Horner's, send it in until you can prove it definitely isn't a Horner's. Brilliant. And that just probably answers the next question, really. So should we refer Horner syndrome as an emergency referral? Um emergency or urgent yes how to decide what's an emergency and how to de de define what is urgent i think probably goes on chronicity 
So, you know, the person who's walked in with a day or two of a Horner's probably should be referred as an emergency. Um, anybody with signs of definite other neurology, so like the case I presented with the altered taste, because uh, that indicates that the nerves supplying the tongue are affected. Um, anybody with a severe headache, facial pain, neck pain, you know, those are the people who need an emergency same day referral. Urgent referrals probably are the ones who have had it for longer than, oh, I don't know, pick a number out of the out, out of the air, probably six weeks. But again, to go back to my other point, look, you know, the on-call ophthalmologist is there for advice as well. We're never going to resent taking a call about a Horner's syndrome and then deciding what to do. And I think even if it's been there for two months, most ophthalmologists will say, look, why don't we just have a look today or first thing in the morning um, with the caveats of painful, unwell, new onset, all get treated as an emergency. Thank you, Reese. That's, uh, again, really reassuring. So moving to the final section of the question. So this is grouped into imaging. Now, with the, the most practice now having access to an OCT or providing it to, as an additional service to other patients, there's been a lot of interest about how to interpret the images. So I've got some questions here. So if you had um, an OCT scan of a disc and you saw a lazy B, what does that refer to? What, does that, what should we do about it? So this idea of a lazy V sign, um, I personally don't find very helpful. And I've looked at an awful lot of OCTs. I think probably, the reason I don't find it very helpful is because all OCT assessment of optic nerves is very, very subjective. So you sort of have to have somebody who really believes in that sign so, so, sort of explain it to you. And maybe that's just not happened to me. So this lazy V is this sort of diffuse elevation of the retinal layers that comes together at an angle just next to the nerve. And that's all it implies. You know, that, that's all the actual sign is. You know, so the V isn't even vertical. It's actually a horizontal V, which I think why they, they call it lazy. Um, yeah, sure, it's certainly a sign that is there, but again, it's a subjective sign. So it has to be taken in the context of other signs on the uh, OCT, what the optic disc actually looks like on slit lamp examination. You know, just to bang on about what I was saying in the talk, assessing the optic disc on a slit lamp is going to give you far more information than an OCT. So, yeah, lazy V, diffuse elevation, coming to a sort of angle, peripapillary. If you see it, great. If you convince yourself you can see it, great. Very subjective, meant to indicate some mild retinal edema around it, I think, or just physical elevation of the retina. If it's helpful to you in your assessment, great. But again, it's not the binary yes, no answer that you're hoping for. Thanks, Reese. And just, just uh, leading on from that, so if, if a disc appears myelinated, so if you used even a, an OCT or a sit-up examination, how could you determine whether there was any swelling or not if it was obscured by that the myelination? So you can't. Um, myelinated nerve fibres basically obscure the optic disc completely. And, you know, 
you cannot assess the optic nerve in that situation. OCTs don't penetrate it. In my talk, I had an OCT of, of a myelinated nerve fiber disc and it just doesn't penetrate down. I, I've not actually tried one with um, uh, EDI sort of extended depth imaging OCT, um, but most OCTs don't penetrate the myelin. You can't adequately assess it. So you cannot rely on that as a sign as to whether or not that person has raised intracranial pressure. And therefore, you've got to go purely on clinical history and clinical signs. Um, you know, that's the problem with all of these signs, you know, and pseudopapilledema. An optic disc drusen is a reason why a disc looks swollen, but people with optic disc drusen can still get optic disc swelling. So, you know, having another reason for pseudopapilledema, of course, does not always exclude that that optic disc is swollen. And that's why it's so, so, so important that you adequately document and adequately assess the patient. For every query anomalous disc I see, I always write down, I'm not concerned, well, I, I take the, as long as I can write this down, I'm not concerned the history has no red flags of raised intracranial pressure, the optic disc does not look swollen because of X, Y, Z, and optic disc is functioning completely. Therefore, I'm not going to investigate this person any further for optic disc pathology. And, you know, so you cannot just rely on purely the examination if you find a cause for pseudopathledema, because those people can still get problems. Okay, so just a, a last few questions for you then, Reese. So on, again, on the OCT imaging, what sort of measurement would you consider to be a raised disc? And particularly if it's raised on one side of the OCT, is, it, is, it, is that a tilted disc or is it early papilledema? Um, so to deal with the uh, measurement on OCT, there, there's no accepted measurements. There, there are studies that say, yeah, technically papilledema have a, a higher, more raised disc than, than non-papilledema and higher than pseudopapilledema, but there is no level that is an agreed cutoff. So it'd be nice if there was, but it doesn't work like that. And then to talk about the optic disc raised on one side, well, papilledema can often start only on one side or in an ischemic optic neuropathy, you can just get segmental swelling. Um, so ultimately, you can't just say from the OCT, oh, it's raised on one side, therefore it's tilted. Again, as I'm always saying, these are signs that complete your examination. They're not signs that make the diagnosis for you. So as long as you interpret all the other signs and the context of that patient presenting, that's how you come to, to the conclusion. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Reese. So that's all the questions that we've covered now. And that brings to an end to the questions. And Reese has comprehensively answered them with a clear and precise advice, which will be very much appreciated and welcomed by our listeners. Again, if you feel that your question has not been fully answered, please do get in touch with the college through the clinical advisor line, either via phone or email, and we'll do our best to address your question or clarify any answers. Once again, thank you so much, Reese, for your time. Thanks to our delegates for their very interesting questions. And thank you for listening. Take care and goodbye. 
Thank you very much for listening to another webinar extra. For more college podcasts, head to the college website or just keep refreshing this feed every five seconds until another one appears. And please do also like, rate and subscribe and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you.